Our scripture reading this morning is Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 19. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, You are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said amen and praised the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the twentieth year to the thirty-second year of Artaxerxes the king, twelve years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people, and took from them for their daily ration forty shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O my God, all that I have done for this people. Well, hey, good morning. Uh, My name is Nate. I haven't met you yet. I have the privilege of serving as a pastor here at Redeemer City. Whether you're online joining us, just want to welcome you. Um, Let me just, for a moment, we've been in Nehemiah for a number of weeks, and let me just call to mind the big idea here. We've been saying from the beginning that the scriptures from cover to cover are about one story. It's about a God who created us, a God who loves us, and then because of sin lost us, but has come after us in the person and work of Jesus. And that this story, in the midst of it, God calls out a people, excuse me, Sorry, <clears throat> I'm really feeling okay, just so you know. Um, I was out last week, and um, anyway, we're good. Um, all to be said is, 
as, as we get moving here, is that God calls out a people by His grace to live out the purposes of God. And we've been looking at this, this Nehemiah and this community in the 5th century B.C. We've been asking the question, as they sought to live out the purposes of God in their day, what can we learn from them to live out the purposes of God in our day? And here's what we see this morning. That being a part of this great project of redemption calls us to turn from living for selfish gain to a horizontal love that's expressed in sacrificial generosity. Let me say it again. This morning we're going to see that being God's people, living out the very purposes of God in our day, calls us from turning from selfish gain and living with a sacrificial generosity toward others. And so we're going to see three things this morning. We're going to see, firstly, two ways to live. Secondly, we're going to see diagnosing what's underneath these two ways of living. And then we're going to lastly consider our response to these two ways of living. So let me pray and we'll, we'll get in. Father, uh, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that it is true that it's living and active that it pierces to dividing spirit, joint, and marrow. In other words, it goes places where it can only go. And we pray this morning, as we consider it, you might do a work in our hearts that might transform us from the inside out to be a people who live with a sacrificial generosity for your name. Amen. Well, two ways to live. You know, um, for many of you, you won't even know what I'm talking about, but in the old days with cameras, there was actually physical film. Have you guys ever seen, I mean, I'm thinking of like, you know, 20 and under, you just take out your iPhones, you take the picture, right? But back in the day, there was like physical film. And if you've ever seen a negative, you know it's the exact opposite of the picture. In other words, where there is light, there's darkness, and where there's darkness, there's light. It's completely reversed. And I would say what we have here in two ways of living are one way that's completely antithetical to the other way. And the first is this, is there's a way to live that lives with an attitude of just selfish gain. And we see it in these opening sections here. We see a community that is in the midst of facing an economic crisis. As as the chapter opens in those first five verses, there are three groups of people that are facing economic challenges. The first are those that don't have land, and yet they're working on this wall, and they can't even get the day-to-day resources to have grain to just live day-to-day, and they're struggling. The second group are those that have land, and they're in the midst. They have land, and so they can leverage some of that for a loan but things have gotten so bad, they, they, they aren't sure about the harvest that's going to be coming. They aren't sure they're going to be able to pay back the loan. So they're facing economic hardship. And the third group are those with land, and it says that they're going to be unable to pay back the king's tax on the fields and vineyards. So everyone is living in this great debt in this situation. And in verse 5, we see just how bad things are. It says this, Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brother's, our children are as their, as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields 
in our vineyards. It had gotten so bad, the debt had gotten so bad that sons and daughters were being put forward as indentured servants to pay off debt. Now, one commentator noted, particularly when it talked about the daughters having already been enslaved, it noted that this language suggests that those daughters were enslaved had sexual overtones. In other words, they were paying back to gratify creditors' lusts as a payment. And here's what's most troubling about this. One, that it's happening. But two, and most importantly, this is the deal. It's not happening with some outside group of this community, like the Persians or the Ammonites, which you might expect that. But this exorbitant interest and this enslavement of sons and daughters are happening within the very members of the people of God. In other words, there are nobles and officials who have power and resources in the people of God who are taking advantage of the weak. Bruce Walkie, one of the professors um, I had at seminary, defining what it means to be wicked in the Old Testament, put it this way. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community in order to advantage themselves. And that's exactly what's happening here. And this is one way to live. It has plenty of faces and expressions, but at its core it says something like this. It's attitudes of saying things like this. I have no responsibility for my neighbor. I just have to take care of myself. It says things like, my faith is private. It's between me and God. It has nothing to do with the social fabric around me. It has attitudes of this saying, helping others is optional. It's like an AP course in a relationship to God. It's the really smart people that do that. But not for the average person. The first way of living in this text we see is simply living for selfish gain. But the flip side is in verses 13 to 18. It's the example of Nehemiah. And look with me at verses 14 to 16. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. And right here we see Nehemiah is in a position of power. And he also had privileges and rights. And yet, what did he do in that position? He had the right to collect a taxation, to provide for his daily needs and rations and those who served with him. And while previous men in that position had lorded over and taken that tax, Nehemiah waves it because he knows how that's going to unduly affect the community that's already weak that he serves. Nehemiah 
lives sacrificially and generously, actually in giving up his rights and his privileges. He doesn't have to do this. And yet he gives them up. But it's not only that. He also is generous with his own resources. Look at verses 17 and 18. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Nehemiah is providing for all these things out of his own resources. He was clearly a wealthy man, but he's using his status and privilege, and he's actually serving. This describes a second way of living. Uh, Bruce Walkie, defining the righteous in the Old Testament, puts it this way. The righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves in order to advantage the community. It's a, it's a way of living at its core that says this, my position and my privilege and my status is not here to benefit me, but it is rather to serve the community. The resources I have are not mine. I have a responsibility for my neighbor and particularly those within the people of God. My faith is not merely private. It's not just me and God. But it is to be expressed publicly to benefit the social fabric of the particular community around me. Helping others is not an AP course. As we'll see in a moment, it's actually the real evidence that there's a real connection with this God. These two ways of living, they're set side by side in this chapter. One that lives for selfish gain, and another that lives with sacrificial generosity. One that benefits, or excuse me, one that disadvantages the community to benefit oneself. Another that disadvantages oneself in order to advantage the community. And this is the question I've been asking myself all week that comes before all of us this morning. Which way are we living? Which attitudes and actions reflect our lives? I think for many of us, we're looking for a third option, right? To recognize there are shades of selfish gain, maybe mixed in with some sprinkling of generosity. But there's not this distinction. So what's going on? You know, um, the second thing that this text shows us, it actually diagnoses what's underneath the way we're living and why we live this way. You know, think about this moment. You know, the last time you went to see a doctor, you probably had some symptoms. So you came with this or that, you came to the doctor, and you're hoping the doctor would diagnose you, 
tell you what is the core issue, what is the problem, and then prescribe a treatment plan that could bring you to full health, right? This text is like a good physician. It's like a good doctor because it diagnoses the core issue. And it's actually found in two verses. And it shows on the one hand this, that actually it is our vertical relationship to God that directly correlates to our horizontal relationship toward others. It's our vertical relationship to God that characterizes our horizontal relationship to others. So look what it says in verse 9. This is in the middle of Nehemiah coming and confronting those who are living with selfish gain. He says this, So I said, the thing you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? That's the first thing Nehemiah is diagnosing their hearts. But check this in verse 15, when it's talking about the motivation for him living generously, he says this, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Do you notice the correlation there? The pattern is this, it's the fear of God. That is what makes the distinction. One has it and another doesn't. In one heart, it's missing. In another, in, in another heart, it's active. And it's working itself out in their life. And the fear of God, you know, it's right, it's one of those concepts, one of those things in which we're not very familiar with it. Um, but to put it this way, one author puts it this way, that it is the proper response to the God of the Bible. It's the proper response let me put it this way. You know, think for a moment, if we could all get in a big bus and we could travel down to see the Grand Canyon. Let's say we all get out and begin to walk towards the precipice. We begin to look out at this, this canyon that is 277 miles long, at various points, 18 miles wide. And what if you show up and we're all standing there and you just kind of yawn? You just kind of shrug. Eh, let's go home. I think like something's going wrong there, right? Like when you see something that is amazing and awe-inspiring, where you can't but help but respond with, oh my. Because the fear of God is responding with awe and honor and reverence to God. One of the things early on in the book of Nehemiah, we see Nehemiah's relationship to God. We see who this God is that creates this fear, this good fear. He has this opening prayer. And he, in, in that prayer, we, we went through it week one, but he he actually confesses his sin and the sin of his people. He recognizes God's holy that he's not. And actually the reason why they're in this predicament, in this exile, is because of their response. And at the same point, he also claims God's steadfast love. 
that this God, even though they've been unfaithful, this love will not give up on them, that this love is still there and that there's a promise to restore them. There's this juxtaposition of this holiness and this goodness of God. Three times Nehemiah in this book calls this God the great and awesome God. At one point, he even says this. He calls this God the God of heaven, which is to say there's no other God but this God. These are all tribal deities that the Ammonites and others look at. This is the God. Nehemiah's relationship to God is one that is like staring out at the Grand Canyon, and it is not him yawning. It is not him just merely shrugging. He has beheld his God, and it is changing him from the inside out. And yet, there are others who are responding with selfish gain. The nobles and officials and their relationship to God is merely one of shrugging or yawning at God. In other words, God's no big deal. And here's what I think most troubling is this, is that if you would sit down Nehemiah and you'd sit down these nobles and officials, you could give them a statement of faith. They could agree on who God is. And yet, there is no awe. There is no reverence. And it shows in their actions. And here's where it shows. It shows because they are not obeying God's good law. And we'll get there in a moment, but look at verses 8 and 9. Nehemiah confronts them. And he said to them, we, as far as we are able, have, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that, you, that, that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? So let me just pause for a moment. Nehemiah says, that is not good. It's wrong. Listen, God's word makes value statements. He even uses the language of ought. In other words, like there's an obligation that you have to this law. This isn't like whether you feel like it or not. Like this is an obligation. And here's why. It's because of texts like Leviticus 25. Listen to what it says. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest nor give him your food for profit. And I want you to notice something here. God doesn't just make up laws willy-nilly. Like his laws are an overflow of his character. The very nature of his being. And here's what we see here. 
that God's heart is for those who are poor and marginalized. That God has a concern for the little guy. And therefore God commands, and this is good, His people to reflect Him and His goodness and His generosity and His justice to their neighbor and how they treat them economically and right here, particularly in the community of faith. So you see for a moment here that the diagnosis of whether you're living for selfish gain or with a sacrificial generosity comes down to this vertical relationship to God. And whether or not there is the fear of God, this awe and this reverence. So how do we respond with where we are? Uh, in verse 9, we've read it a number of times, but it, Nehemiah says, Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? And I want to spend the rest of our time thinking about how do we, how do we lean into that? How do we respond to that? We're going to look in, we're going to look up, and we're going to look out. Let me begin with in. Um, what's remarkable is after Nehemiah confronts the nobles and officials, is they repent. In verses 10 to 13, they give back the land and the interest. They repent. They turn from their ways. It is a wonderful, wonderful scene. Can we just say something here? That is normative in the people of God. Repentance. Um, I, and I think this is one of the reflections for a moment. I think of Scott Saul's quote here. As we think about following Jesus, the call to Jesus is not take up your comfort, deny your neighbor, and follow your dreams. It is really hard. It's really hard to not do that. But the scriptures, as they form us, it calls us not to a faith that is private, but one that is corporate, that's concerned about the social fabric around us and the needs. I mean, think for a moment of Micah 6, 8, where it's just summarizing. This is what it means to walk with God. It says, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God? But to do justice means to be concerned with the poor and the marginalized. It means helping others is not, is not optional. It's not an AP course. It means it's, it's straight out of just a normal, ordinary person walking with God, knowing this God, walking in the fear of God. Just think about that. What ways might we need to repent in attitude and actions? In what ways are our hearts and lives being shaped by the world that does say, take up your comfort, deny your neighbor, and follow your dreams?
Jesus offers a different way. But let me also look up for a moment. And let's consider Jesus. You know, there's um, five centuries later, Paul is writing a church in Corinth. And he's taking up a collection because there's some other Christians who are in Jerusalem who are in poverty. They have a great need. And so Paul is taking a collection. And what's remarkable is the collection he's taking are from Gentiles who have found Jesus, their Messiah, as their one, and now their family with those who they would never have been with before. They haven't even met these people in Jerusalem. And Paul is talking about taking a collection so they can give their resources to help those miles away who they don't even know. And you know what he does? Look at what he writes in 2 Corinthians 8 9. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Paul, in the middle of this letter, talking about a motivation, what might stir them to being generous puts the work of Jesus in economic terms. Or let me put it this way. Jesus is a true and better Nehemiah. We saw Nehemiah give up rights and privileges. We, see, we saw Nehemiah expend himself for the benefit of the community. Do you know there's one that far surpasses Nehemiah that has done that for you? That is actually what the gospel is. When it says that Jesus became poor so that you might become rich, it means Jesus gave up his rights and his privileges and his status, and he became poor, taking on him your sins on the cross to make you rich to give you the forgiveness of sins, an inheritance that 1 Peter says will never perish or fade. And that's actually the pathway into fearing God. It's actually the pathway. It is to be in awe and reverence of a God who would do that for you and for me. And this is, the, this is the switch. It's, Paul is not saying to these Christians, you know, if you give, then God will love you. That's not what he's saying. He's saying God has loved you generously. Do you know that? And because of that, live in light of that. It's the gospel itself that produces the very fear of God, this awe and this reverence. Do you know, do you know how Jesus has disadvantaged himself for you in order to benefit you? Do you know, not the, not the like middle class, middle class mercy that he gives, but do you know the riches of his mercy? If so, then this ought to produce in us 
hands and lives that release, that, that give. So let's look out for a moment. One of the things about this text is you just see a lot of action in this text. Like the nobles and officials, they repent and it, it leads into some very clear actions. Nehemiah, on the ground, he is giving up rights and privileges and he is using his resources like it leads to a life that's changed. And so let's think for a moment of what this might mean for us here in this moment. And let's consider the church, our family. In 1 John, John writes this, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? You know, John's writing this epistle, and it's almost this test of like, hey, is this faith real in you, or is it not? Some of it's doctrinal, some of it's life on life, and here it's just life practice. And saying, hey, when you see your, when you see your fellow Christian in need, do you seek to meet it? And this, is, this needs to reframe how we think about life because the church is not a bunch of isolated individuals. We're giving resources and is an addendum or optional. The church is a new family of brothers and sisters beloved by God in Christ who are called to love one another. And love is a verb. It leads with action. A couple ways to think about this. In our city group life, what are the needs around you? Do you know the needs? Even economic needs. How might you lean into those? Or secondly, think about the corporate life. Um, you can go on the Planning Center Give page, and we have a benevolence fund. And this is a fund particularly for those who are in need, who don't have resources, and let me tell you, this gets used. People come, and they have needs. And through prayerful wisdom, those resources are deployed. Have you ever thought about just beginning to give towards that benevolence fund? It's an opportunity to live this out. But then secondly, let's consider our neighbors. Um, in Galatians 6.10, look at what Paul writes. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And notice that. There is a distinction. There is an obligation, responsibility for the local church to care for the local church. It's right there. But notice how it extends beyond that. It extends to good to everyone. And that good is not just merely, it's, it, it's talking economics. It's talking giving. Uh, I was at a conference this week, and one of the things I heard um, was about a study in Philadelphia. And it was a study done over 12 months, and they surveyed 12 churches, and they're trying to gauge the economic benefit that these churches brought to a neighborhood, brought to that community. And over a 12-month span, I don't know how they came up with this, but I'm not joking, it was $50.5 million dollars. It's remarkable. How about us? 
You know, um, I don't know all of the gifts and resources in Redeemer City, but I wonder how we might continue to move forward thinking about what it means to, be, to do good to everyone. Let me give you just a few options here. One is, one of the things we're trying to explore and come up with is we want to put a food pantry box right out front of our facility here so that those walking by in the neighborhood can come and get stuff and go back. Um, they actually have one over at the Vine Ascending Church. We really want to put one out here. And so we're exploring that. Listen, um, we've actually got resources in our benevolence fund to do that. We just need some people who would say, you know what, I could help organize some of that. I could help put some of this together. And then there'll be some sort of dynamic where we have to fill it. We could all participate. But that's one project where we could together move forward for the good of everyone. Another one, a couple weeks ago, we shared with you this roof on this facility. We got 30,000 more we got to bring in to, to, to have the roof taken care of. And let, let me tell you what, this, is, this facility is not just this Sunday. There are groups throughout the week that meet in the facility that, that don't believe what we believe. And we're so glad they'd come here and use this as a resource. But let me say, let me challenge you. If you remember, that's one of the reasons why we're challenging you to give towards that. We kind of need a roof, right? It's kind of important. But how about this? Think for a moment of just where God's placed you. In your neighborhood, in your apartment, in your school, where are the needs around you? Like, what is God doing there? And how might you step in there and do good? This is not only a we project collectively, it's a you individual where God has you, that you've been sent Um, at the end of the day, notice what Nehemiah says about the reason for walking in the fear of God. In verse 9, it says, Ought you not walk in the fear of God to prevent the taunts of our enemies? In other words, Nehemiah is saying this, As those around who don't worship this God look in, the reason they would taunt is because you live just like everybody else. And Nehemiah is saying, God, this God is so great. This God is just. This God is generous. And we want to see this God proclaimed and known. I don't know who said this, but it's one of my favorite quotes, and we'll close with this. But he says this, or she, we see a God who cares about justice so much that he sends a servant to bring about a just world and plants a just community to bear witness to it. Let's pray. Father, um, we just pray now that, Lord, uh, as we've heard your word, that, Lord, you would do a work in our hearts and lives to take a next step. Lord, what we heard here in a moment about selfish gain, that you would turn our hearts and lives that go inward and move them outward. And we give you thanks that you are rich in mercy and that you are kind. We pray now that you'd continue to shape us as a people.
to bear witness to who you are and how we live. And we ask this in your name. Amen.